This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, a podcast that looks at current movies and connects them to older or less familiar movies that are tangentially related to the subject at hand. My name is Stephen Cook and I'm arts reporter for the website localexpress.ca. And I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're talking Woody Allen, the New York filmmaker who's been making movies for 50 years. Well, it's hard to really know where to start with Woody Allen, considering how long his career is and how many films he's made and how many kind of periods he's gone through and how many styles he's uh, appropriated for his films going back to the to the late 60s. Uh, but uh, as, as, a, as a humor stylist, he's, he's one of the busiest filmmakers known to man. He seems to feel this uh, desire to crank out a film every year, uh, sometimes uh, maybe with not all the care and diligence that uh, should attend some of these uh, some of these productions, but uh, every year without fail, it's it's almost like Christmas. A new Woody Allen film comes along, and uh, this year, or at least this season, because there could be another one before twelve months are up. Uh, it's Cafe Society, a rather nostalgic look back at uh, at Golden Age Hollywood and a classic style romance as well. Yeah, Woody Allen. He is a figure that has really made a huge impact on American filmmaking, uh, coming out of stand-up comedy in the 60s, becoming a filmmaker in the late 60s and then to the 70s, and uh, certainly an, a controversial figure, too. I know that there are some people who have been longtime Woody Allen fans who will no longer watch his movies because of some, you know, the reports of of what's been going on in his personal life. And, and I, you know, in this podcast, we don't tend to delve into subjects. Uh, we're talking about the work, not the artist. And I, I think that's kind of sort of where I stand with it. I, I still consider a lot of Woody Allen's early films to be my favorite. And I, I count the films of, say, uh, Roman Polanski to be <laughs> great as well. But, but I, I understand those who cannot appreciate the work and and cannot deal with the uh the crimes of, of the artist uh it's it's a tough one it's like a, it's a question for for anyone who appreciates art whatever form is is how to manage how to manage the reputation of uh, of the artist when when you know some of the stuff you hear is pretty problematic i don't think we need to get into it but i just figured it was worth uh tipping a hat to the fact that that this is something that uh people people certainly talk to talk to and about in relation to this this particular filmmaker yeah the, there are some trouble troubling aspects to his personal life that uh that i would rather not get into uh it's you know it's it's like musicians how do you, how do you cope with uh you know, if you, if you deleted everyone from your uh, record collection based on some of their personal peccadillos, uh, and, and obviously I'm, that sounds like I'm making light of of things, but I, I didn't mean to. But uh, but if you if you did that, then then you'd have a, a lot of. Uh, a lot of blank spaces yeah, and in the collection, and I, the same with same with movies. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think the, the I think what's especially tough with Alan is that so many people, 
draw connections between what they have heard or read about his private life and his work because his work tends to be thematically very similar. He talks about morality. He talks about mortality. He talks about relationships between men and women. Very often there are relationships with an older man who has some sort of power over a younger woman. You know, these kinds of things happen. And uh, yeah, it, it, I can understand anyone who has trouble managing that and appreciating the work. But, but uh, you know, he has 50 years of work and there is a lot of terrific stuff in there. There is uh, a lot of stuff which is so-so, but but I have to admire that since the early 80s, as you mentioned, he has been churning them out one, one a year. And and that kind of uh, productivity, at least, is is astonishing. It's I think it's pretty much unparalleled in terms of his his uh his stature in in filmmaking. Yeah, it's it's almost like a compulsion. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, we see we see him returning to older themes. Uh, and and revisiting ideas that he's had in the past. I mean, one of his uh, biggest hits, uh, Midnight in Paris, um, you know, was basically a revival of an old joke from his stand-up comedy days in the 1960s, where he did a whole routine about Hemingway and and F. Scott Fitzgerald and and uh, you know it, uh, Alice B. Toklas in Paris and all that. And he basically took this kind of rather thin premise and expanded it into a kind of a wistful fantasy about time travel and a longing for uh, simpler or more grandiose times. Uh, so, uh, you know, we see him returning to the well a few times and, you know, I, I think he ex- successfully expanded on, on the material, but I thought it was interesting. He would re- return to something like that. You know, he doesn't really talk a lot about his stand up days or, or, you know, have any desire to go back to it, but it's interesting. He can revive that material. Yeah. Well, he has a, there's a documentary, a great one actually about his life and his work. And uh, he has a, this, and in the documentary, you see his apartment in New York city and the drawer that he keeps all his, his ideas in. And it's, you know, scraps of piece of paper, things floating around, who knows how long they've been in there. So he, uh, he does have a tendency to go back to, to his, his sources. And, uh, you know, as I was preparing for this, this podcast, I thought, well, okay, so there are some of his films that are really well known and I'll just rattle off a few titles now. Annie Hall, Manhattan, Hannah and her sisters, crimes and misdemeanors, uh, Vicky, Christina, Barcelona. And as the one you mentioned, midnight in Paris. Now these are all amongst some of my favorite movies is the reason that they're the most popular. It's because he, he reached a certain, he achieved something with these films. And I, and I definitely, I love those, but I thought that today it would be more interesting and maybe more useful for, for listeners to, uh, uh, to get into his lesser known films that I think deserve watching. And I think, uh, so I chose five, um, but we should probably start with the one that uh, just recently opened. What did you make of Cafe Society, Stephen? I, I had uh, fairly high hopes for Cafe Society. I I, uh, I can't say the last couple of films that have come out, I, I haven't been a huge fan of. And Cafe Society, I saw the trailer. I thought, oh, he's, he's back in retro mode. That's always worked well for him in the past, whether it's something like... Um, a film we'll talk about probably radio days or uh, one we won't talk about shadows and fog, which is kind of like a tribute to German expressionism, which is a better film than, than people um, said it was at the time. And uh, you know, when he, when he, when he's in retro mode, he seems to be able to kind of bring up some of his old, you know, insert some of his feelings about philosophy and life and death and that sort of thing in, in into sort of that construct. But, but I felt with, with cafe society um, this, this, this kind of fairly, thin romance, uh, between Jesse Eisenberg and, um, Kristen Stewart and, uh, and Steve Carell, if you want to complete the triangle. Uh, I just, I didn't find there was a lot of there, there. I didn't think that the characters had a ton of depth. 
I thought uh, that there was no real uh, conflict or struggle of any kind for any of the characters. You know, like Jesse Eisenberg moves to California. He wants to get into the movie business with the help of his uncle, who's a high-powered agent in Hollywood, uh, meets his assistant, Kristen Stewart, and falls for her hard, not knowing that she has a secret. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, when things go sour, he goes back uh, to New York, uh, starts running his brother's nightclub and marries a beautiful blonde woman. So it's, it's, there's real, I don't know the, I, I really didn't feel good or bad for any of these characters really. Well, I hear what you're saying. I, I think I liked it more than you. I, I felt like it had a sort of lazy, fun kind of quality to it. I thought that, uh, that this is Woody at, at a more whimsical tone than some of his other films. In terms of the narrative, yeah, I agree that that some of it isn't fairly, really very well developed. The characters don't go on a real journey and and reach some kind of conclusion. At the at the end of the film, they are very much the way they were at the beginning, which is a problem, I think, uh, and and certainly is not a good way to write a script. You want your characters to actually go there, uh, you know, in terms of of their core essential qualities. But uh, but yeah, Jesse Eisenberg's character, he's he's this you know this kid from from. The Bronx. He goes to Hollywood. There's there's some fun to be had out there with the visions of classic Hollywood. Certainly, it's beautifully shot. It's one mm. of his most lovely looking films. And I think that Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, who have acted in movies before, they were in a film last year called American Ultra. They playing very different characters, yeah, it's very but different. but uh, but yeah, I thought that they they have a chemistry and and you're kind of rooting for them. And and Eisenberg's character eventually goes back to New York and becomes a big wheel in the sort of nightclub business and gets involved with his brother is a gangster and and there are some elements there that especially with the gangster sort of subplot that reminded me a little bit of crimes and misdemeanors though it's probably a mistake to compare the films because they just don't <laughs> this one is nowhere near as good as crimes and misdemeanors but i think overall i felt like i enjoyed where it took me and and i like that it ended on a note of melancholy. I felt like that really helped me appreciate the film. I think if it had been a happy ending, I might've been like, this is completely forgettable. But there was there was a little bit of like, oh, so maybe things, not everything's gonna work out for these for these characters. Yeah, it's, I guess he was going for kind of the feel of a F. Scott Fitzgerald short story or something like that. I mean, that's the kind of feel that it had. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly agree that it looked great fantastic production design. It was shot by, uh, I think, Baterio Storaro, who yep. shot Apocalypse Now and uh, was uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's long-serving uh, long uh, cinematographer. You know, just probably, you know, given some of the people that have passed in recent years, probably the best cinematographer currently available, I would think, in that classic style. And uh, and it certainly, you know, it certainly is easy on the eyes. And uh, I didn't have any faults with the cast. I certainly thought that, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, Eisenberg and Stewart having that previous relationship, I think, you know, already have that kind of ease on screen together. And, uh, and I really like Kristen Stewart. Maybe she's, she's the thing I like most in the picture. She's just comes across as so natural and unforced. And, you know, I think she's sort of free of the twilight. <laughs> I think yeah. She's, she's, she's really, been, she's taken some really great steps with her yeah. career in recent years, making some really good choices. And, uh, the, a film she was in last year, the clouds of Sils Maria. I absolutely love. Yeah. She's fantastic. Uh, yeah. so I think she's making really great, great choices. And I think she's, she's doing things that a lot of young actors aren't doing, uh, in Hollywood. So, so good for her. And yeah, and, per know. and personal shoppers coming up, it'll be at the Atlantic film fest, which right. I'm, and with the same director as Clouds of Sils Maria. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, I'm like, oh, you pulled, you pulled out of that <laughs> nose top. Yeah. Of the Twilight. Yeah. 
you know, which I, I, you know, I'm a sucker. I saw them all in the theater. Cause I'll see anything <laughs> with a vampire in it, but, uh, yeah, but you know, it's the reason for those, those film success means that she has more choices now to, to act in, in obscure and, and, and strange European dramas. And, you know, I think it's great. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so, so we had mixed feelings about, uh, cafe society. Yeah. The but, whole was less than the sum of the parts I yeah. think, in, in my, in my feeling. Uh, one thing I will say that it has some of the best lines uh, of recent Woody, the one of the lines was until one day out hunting, she mistook him for a deer. I love <laughs> that line. And of course you have to see the whole scene to know why it's so funny, but it's a great, it's a great line. And then there was one that was also in the trailer. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, but the examined one's no bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so he snuck a little philosophy in there. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't a lot of it, but there's, there's a little bit. The, the deer thing reminds me, of course, probably his best known stand-up comedy bit. I don't know if you know this, where a couple goes to a party dressed in a moose costume and somehow there, there's a mix-up with an actual moose at, oh, okay. at a costume party. And uh, anyway, it's if, if you can uh, get a chance to go back and listen to Woody Allen's stand-up comic uh, collection of, of two older albums that were released in the 60s put together. And I don't know, I think it's on CD. I've got a double LP of it kicking around um some funny stuff but you, you you know you see how he was stood out from the run of the mill comics uh in the 1960s with some more cerebral material um as opposed to the so-called sick comedy that as, as mainstream media branded it um and you can see when you know when he got into films how he was going to determine to even though he's working in the comedy genre he's determined to stand apart from from his peers and uh and it's it's again uh, you know I, i'm sure he was thinking of that bit yeah, <laughs> when he came up with that with that uh, particular joke. Now he has long been uh, celebrated for his early funny movies, and I put that in quotes: early funny movies, which is right. a line from I think it's from uh, Stardust Memories. That, that, yeah, that's kind of where he just basically mirrored what other people had already said. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and um, Stardust Memories is a great film to watch because it's really about the artist. Uh, you know, dealing with his audience in a way that he's not terribly forgiving of. He's kind of tough on himself, but he's also tough on the people who love him. Uh, but I didn't show, choose that film in my my list of five. I thought it's, it's pretty, pretty well known. I thought I'd better go back to those early funny films. And I was like, oh, Sleeper is hard to ignore because Sleeper was maybe the first one of his films I really loved as a kid. Yeah, same Because here. I was a sci-fi geek and, and it was a funny science fiction movie. I, I do appreciate that. But I think... Uh, I wanted to talk about Love and Death, which is the kind of comedy that would just never get made today. And that's why I find it so delightful. It's a satire of Russian literature. Uh, and, you know, I'm no scholar of Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Chekhov, but this is a hilarious movie. I don't think you even need to get the references to appreciate it. Um, Alan plays Boris and his favorite leading lady of that whole era, Diane Keaton, plays Sonia. And like Bananas and Sleeper, there's it's a story of politics and societal revolution. Uh, but uh, there's so much physical humor in the films. A regular, well-placed gags. I, I can really see the Marx Brothers influence in his work at that point. Uh, but, but in watching it again recently, Love and Death reminded me nothing other than Monty Python in the way that it pushed boundaries and it, it assumed a knowledge or at least an interest in history, but it doesn't really matter. I think you can enjoy it either way. Oh yeah, you don't need to know anything about the Napoleonic Wars or Dostoevsky or you know or Chekhov to get into to Love and Death. I don't think so. I mean, I I would probably say that is my favorite Woody Allen film, uh, bar none, um, just because it has the mix 
of of kind of past and future would he more so than Stardust Memories because Stardust Memories is kind of posited as kind of a midway point where you know where he was trying to get away from his past and and you know take a more uh, cerebral approach to his films and you know of course he made a couple of sort of Ingmar Bergman esque dramas around that time as well. Um, there's September I think it was September and another another woman I think or Interiors that's Interiors it. yeah so that's, I think that's three um, three of those so. Um, and, and that's kind of when people, he felt that people were kind of starting to turn on him a little bit, especially after reaching such a peak with, uh, Annie Hall and Manhattan, but, but love and death, uh, it's, it's got dumb humor. It's got incredibly smart and literate humor. And then it's got just the, the kind of surreal, uh, non sequitur kind of humor. It just, it just covers all the bases. As you mentioned the Marx brothers, Monty Python. And when I first saw it, I, I actually, I think I was one of the earliest films I saw at Wormwood's Dog and Monkey Cinema. Um, uh, you know, I noticed a lot of Bob Hope. Oh yeah. In, in his delivery, you know, like playing the kind of bumbling, wisecracking guy who's just stuck in this, like that, that was always the Bob Hope is in a haunted house or he's a detective or he's on a ship, you know, they, he's a pirate, but it's always the same character. Right. And I think he was kind of taking that I mean, we've already seen that to some extent with like bananas and, and sleeper, but, but I think his, his hopisms come out really strongly in, uh, in love and death. And then, but they seem even more incongruous when stuck in the middle of the Napoleonic wars. And, uh, you know, I, I just love that. And then it made me go back and watch some of the Bob Hope movies. I, you know, I, by that time I'd maybe read some articles or what have you and, uh, realized, you know, there, you know, the influence that he had on, on that kind of guy who's kind of, he's like a rabid womanizer, but at the same time, like completely ineffectual <laughs> Right <laughs> at the same yeah, time. That's true. That, that does, uh, pretty much, uh, encapsulate what the Woody Allen character is. And sometimes I think as, as brilliant as many of his films are, his greatest achievement was inventing that iconic character, the sort of Jewish, uh, upper middle-class New Yorker neurotic, uh, you know, and of course it's the thing that a lot of people don't like about Woody Allen, but, but if you can plug into that humor, if you can relate to it, then it's, uh, it's, you know, it pays off again and again and one film after another. Uh, I wanted to mention my favorite line from Love and Death is probably sex without love is an empty experience. Yes, but as empty experiences go, it's one of, <laughs> one the, of the best. best. <laughs> <laughs> or even this one, we have to take our possessions and flee. I'm very good at that. I was the men's freestyle fleeing champion two <laughs> years in a row. Uh, and then there's this one. Of course, there's old Gregor and his son, young Gregor. Oddly enough, young Gregor's son was older than old Gregor. No one could figure out how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he stole that from Spike Milligan, but, um, <laughs> but it, it, it's a good joke. It is a good joke. I, yeah. My favorite line in the film, which I just know verbatim, I, I don't have this written down, but it's actually a bit of dialogue by um, uh, Diane Keaton when I think it's right after Woody professes, I think she's his cousin. Anyway, he professes his love for her and she goes, to be happy, you must love, but to love, you must struggle. And to struggle is to suffer, and to suffer is to be unhappy. <laughs> it just, that has stuck with me. So to be happy Ever, is to be unhappy. Basically, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's just not going to work. And and so basically that line has stuck with me ever since that first time. I was, and I've seen it several times since. In fact, I just picked up the Blu-ray. I think it just came out ah, fairly good. recently. And I can't wait to watch it again. But but uh, but that line has stuck with me ever since that very first screening. <laughs> so so do you have someone, one from your list that you might like to mention? Sure. Um, I'm wondering if I should start at the top or at the bottom. I don't know. Um, I'm doing mine chronologically. Um, oh, I just put them down kind of at random. Uh, 
I'm going to start at the bottom and uh, with uh, What's Up Tiger Lily, which uh, is is not really a film that's very well regarded by most Woody Allen fans. And I'm sure uh, even he himself would, would kind of look down upon this kind of very strange exercise, um, which was one, one of his, well, it's his very first uh, credit as a director. Of course, he'd, he'd written a couple of screens. He'd written uh, What's Up Tiger uh, What's New Pussycat, um, which was kind of a sex comedy with Peter O'Toole and, and Peter Sellers. And, and uh, I think he had a hand in the writing of that colossal mess, uh, Casino Royale. Not, not the one that we know and love, but the, that 60s kind of attempt to, to spoof do Bond. a James Bond spoof that yeah, yeah. makes no sense and had four different directors and, and doesn't hang together at all. And I love it anyway, because it's so over the top and ridiculous. And it's <laughs> like the perfect example of why the studio system collapsed in the late sixties, you know, just that kind of that weird, like throw anything at the wall and see what sticks yeah, approach, yeah. which, and, you know, throw in this case, throw millions of dollars at the wall and see what sticks, you know, and it's just not a good approach to movie making. And of course, I think he took something from that. Like, do not make a movie like this ever, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, I, you know, he's, he's always stuck to kind of lower budgets and, and tight schedules and coming in, uh, under scheduled, under budget ever since that experience. But what's up tiger Lily for those who haven't seen it, it's a, they basically they take a Japanese spy movie. Uh, and then this was done, I think for American international pictures. So it wasn't even for like, you know, usually he was with United artists and then Orion. Um, he did this one off for Atlanta, for American international where they bought the rights to a 1960s sort of straight ahead, uh, Japanese spy movie. Um, I can't, the, the original title, like it's like something about the key or keys, no keys or key of keys or something like that. And they, they completely redub it. He gets a bunch of his uh, New York friends like Louise Lasser, I think is one of the voices you hear. They redub it. He writes this whole new script. It becomes about uh, one man's quest to find the secret recipe for the perfect egg salad. And, uh, and it's actually, I think it's actually got elements of more than one uh, Japanese spy caper kind of mixed in. But, uh, I guess, I guess, you know, when you're just throwing a bunch of scenes into a blender, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just psych eggs and, and dumb recurring bits. Like every time he gets into a fight, he keeps saying the same expressions over again, over and over again, the Saracen dog, Russian cow or Roman cow, Russian snake, you know, just, and every time there's a fight, he just keeps saying the same expressions over and over again. Um, there are musical interludes by the love and spoonful. Okay. Um, Every once in a while, there's a break in the film where uh, a, a narrator asks Woody Allen to explain what's actually happening <laughs> in the movie, and he basically just says, uh, "No, yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah, I can't help you there." I've seen I've seen excerpts of this, but I've never watched the whole thing. I I think uh, again, the reputation has been mixed, but it sounds like you really like it, and maybe uh, maybe I, you suggest people watch it. I think it's pretty funny. Uh, there are two cuts of the film. Weirdly, there's like a couple. Of, there's like two different dubs. Uh, I think they redid it for TV or something like that. And one of them is definitely funnier than the other. Uh, Cause I remember revisiting it and thinking this doesn't feel the same. And I remember there was like a joke about a sex toy or a vibrator or something that was missing. And so I knew it was like um, this edited or redone for TV version that was missing a bunch of the funniest jokes in the movie. Um, but it, it's, it's definitely a lot of fun. It, it, it kind of predates kind of the mystery science theater kind of thing where, you know, you kind of make a fun of a movie while it plays. Um, and it, it, you know, I think elements of what happened in this film influenced the Zucker brothers, you know, who made Airplane and sure. Top Secret and so on. So it's, it's kind of a groundbreaking film. It's not a format he returned to, uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely something I like. I don't think older Woody would have any desire to even attempt to do something like this again, but it would be funny if he did. <laughs> so going to my list of, uh, 
sort of lesser known or seen Woody classics, uh, I went with Zelig, which was, uh, I guess maybe as close as he got to something like what's up tiger Lily later in his career. Uh, Zelig kind of, uh, is the original, uh, mockumentary in a lot of ways. It, it, it's, um, I think it came out around the same time as Spinal Tap, maybe a little bit before, but basically it's, it's a pseudo documentary about a mysterious chameleon man who just happens to appear at every significant moment in, uh, in history. And it's incredibly well done. It, Woody plays the character Zelig, uh, who we only see in kind of, uh, repurposed stock footage. Uh, but the, the way they do it, the way they match film stocks and, and get the look right, you know, there's, there's, there's no feel that he's just in front of a green screen or whatever. It's incredibly well done for 1983. Like, I don't think they had any computers. I think it was all done photochemically with, with optical printers and so on, but, uh, with real painstaking attention to detail. And, uh, it's, it's kind of a funny look at, at, at pop culture through the ages in a way about how this, this guy became kind of famous for just, uh, you know, being a comedian or being a chameleon rather <laughs> being a Canadian, no comedian, chameleon. Um, and showing up like, you know, at the Reichstag with Hitler and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, I, I have really fond memories of this film. It's, it's something I saw not when it came out, but, uh, not too long after when, when these things started to show up on home video. And, uh, I, I think it stands up pretty well. It doesn't really feel dated. And then you've got a lot of Woody Allen regulars showing up as sort of experts on history and pop culture and so on, talking about this amazing thing. They even re- have like a novelty song from the from the thirties uh, about Zelig that sound, that just sounds just like an old dance band record from that time period. And uh, I, I was really impressed with with uh, with the execution of it. But it's it's also really funny. It's it's a, it's an interesting oddity in his uh, catalog um, that uh, that I think really works. Yeah, I uh, like Zelig a lot. I don't watch it much in terms of the Woody Allen collection that I have. It's I don't have all his all his movies, all his forty six and a third <laughs> movies that we we counted them just before we <laughs> started recording. Uh, but I have maybe twenty, and it's one I have, and so it, it is technically brilliant. Like it is amazing to see what they did, and it's and it, it beats like it's the the gag of um, Forrest Gump, I guess. I guess uh, Rod, uh, Robert Zemeckis decided, oh, if Woody Allen can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> and uh, it's, but it's done much better when Woody does it. I would say I'm, I have a real beef against uh, Forrest Gump that we'll go into yeah. on some other podcast. Yeah, that is not a film that's aged well <laughs> at all. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's uh, Zelig is, is is amazing. It is sort of one joke, but it's a really good joke. So I'm okay with how that plays out and uh and yeah i think people uh will be really surprised if if you haven't seen it uh and are interested in exploring some of woody's stuff then that's one one worth checking out yeah it's uh it is kind of a one joke film but it's very brief i think it's barely over 80 minutes if, if i recall correctly like it goes by quickly and uh there's a certain poignancy to this 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 man who without a personality who who just kind of fades into the woodwork and eventually fades from history. Uh, so it's, it's not all just one sort of cheap, uh, gimmick as it were. There, there is kind of a, a, a thin layer of sadness under there. I mean, you don't really get to know who this, this character was, but it, it was, it was kind of a, a, a fresh idea at the time back in 1983. And it, it came between a couple of not necessarily heavier films, but, um, a Midsummer Night sex comedy, which is like his tribute to an Ingmar Bergman film, Smiles of a Summer Night. Uh, and then, um, 
uh, Broadway Danny Rose, which is a terrific, terrific film, it, very much a comedy, but, um, you know, a, a more of a character piece for him, uh, where he was playing this kind of washed up, uh, New York agent for failed and fading vaudeville acts. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's next on my list. That's, that, that's a great one to return to. Well, maybe yeah. we should dive right into, to Broadway Danny Rose. Sure. Then, if it's the next one you have, because, uh, you know, I, that's a film that I go back to every every couple of years or so, and I, uh, I just love it. And Mia Farrow is, is terrific in it. One of one of her fine uh, finer performances in Woody's films, and you know, just I love the the, the different all the acts that he parades, you know, for trying to trying to get them gigs in nightclubs and resorts and so on. When you know. 20 or 30 years past their sell-by date. Yeah, absolutely. He he plays, um, uh, well, the story basically starts, it's black and white, and it it is really a showcase for Mia Farrow, who, who's the gangster's mole who never takes her sunglasses off. Um, now, the story is basically told by comedians who are getting together at the Carnegie Deli in New York, and they're remembering a talent agent, Danny Rose, who's played by Woody, and he represents all of these terrible acts, but he really has passion for them. And and it's one of those stories where it feels a bit like a shaggy dog story. You really don't know if, because it's being told in this framework where, where these comedians are telling the story, you know that probably some aspects of it are exaggerated. So you're watching something fairly sure that this is a fictional account of maybe actual events, uh, but uh, but you go along with it and, and there's very little sense of where it's going. Like I watching it again, I was kind of amazed at the plotting of it. That it is so well plotted, you you are completely surprised at where this this movie goes. And and uh, Pharaoh actually doesn't show up until uh, twenty minutes into the movie or something. At that point, all you've met all these other characters, and you're like, well, who is this really about? And <laughs> and I love that. I love that. And Rose represents this has been lounge singer singer named Lou, played by Nick Apollo Forte. He's married with three kids, but he's having an affair with Tina, who's the Pharaoh character. He wants her at this important gig that he's about to have at the Waldorf Astoria. So Danny Rose agrees to be a beard so she can go, but her ex-boyfriend is a gangster. He's a real (laughs) jealous type. And all of a sudden, Danny and Tina are on the run in New Jersey and uh, it's yeah, it's it's just it's a real it's a real pleasure this uh, this movie to see it again and and uh, I, I wanted to also mention my my favorite line from it. I don't want to badmouth the kid, but he's a horrible, immoral, dishonest louse, and I say that with all due respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Every once in a while, he he goes into gangster mode. Uh, I mean, obviously, we see it in Cafe Society, but there's bullets over Broadway. Sure, yeah, gets yeah. into a big time, and that that one's a lot of fun. That's one that's worth going back to. Um, there's a uh, Cassandra's Dream, which is basically a straight-ahead like noir drama. It's not really that good. I, I can't really say I'd recommend it, but yeah, it's it's straight-ahead like dark crime drama. Uh, yeah, so occasionally he really is attracted to that that part of life. Certainly, Crimes and Misdemeanors has has elements of that too. Yeah, it, it's a shame about uh, Cassandra's Dream because it, it's so well cast. Yeah, you, know, you just. I don't know. He just wanted to go somewhere different, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, I think my favorite thing in Broadway, Danny Rose, I think there's a shootout in the warehouse where they keep the Macy's day parade balloons or something like that. That's, that, that's a, that's a scene that always fills me with joy whenever I see it. Um, all right. So I want to jump to the nineties. Now another film on my list that, uh, that every time I see it, I absolutely love it, and I don't understand. It's one of those ones that, that, uh, my affection for it has overwhelmed any possible critical objective, 
<laughs> assessment to the point where when people badmouth it, I'm like, are you kidding me? This should be considered one of his great ones. And it's Everyone Says I Love You, his only true musical. And it's funny because I just read a review today in The Guardian about a movie that's opening later this fall called uh, La La Land. Oh, yeah. Damien Chazelle's saw, new, new film. I saw a trailer for that. That looks great. It looks great. It's a musical from the director of Whiplash. And the, the reviewer in The Guardian gave it like a five-star review, his highest rating. But he compared it favorably to Everyone Says I Love You in terms of the fact that it's full of people, actors who aren't considered great singers, but they are giving it their all in uh, in, a, in a movie where the music is amazing and the choreography mm. and all this this joie de vivre that so many great musicals have. And, uh, and Woody captures it so well that you were like, well, I'll say I was very sad when he didn't make another musical because I just felt like he really got something here. Um, and uh, anyway, so so uh, uh, basically the story is that uh, a very wealthy family is upper sort of New York, uh, you know, lives opposite the uh, Central Park. Um, they are uh, dealing, they're, they're, they spend every Christmas in Paris, and it's kind of this rambling tale of their lives. Uh, it's told through various members of the family in prominent roles and singing, all of them, Drew Barrymore, Edward Norton, Tim Roth, Julia Roberts, Alan Alda, Goldie Hawn, and Natalie Portman. Um Alda and Han are the parents of some of the kids, uh, and Woody is Joe, the ex-husband who, I guess, actually, I can't even remember who the paternal, the actual paternal, but it's this large extended family. Um, my my favorite uh, moments of the film is uh, Enjoy Yourself is Later Than You Think, uh, Chiquita Banana, I'm Through With Love, and especially Hooray for Captain Spaulding, which is, <laughs> which is from the Marx Brothers ca- Animal Crackers, except in this film, it's sung in French. Uh, and there's a final scene along the Seine between Woody yes. and Goldie Hawn, which is just as wonderful as anything, I think, in, in classic musicals. And, and the title track is also a song that was sort of, I don't know if it was made famous by Groucho, but Groucho is known for singing the song um, right. at, at, I think, early in his career, or at least his film career. And then I think he may have even done it with a ukulele or something at one of the concerts he was giving towards the end of his life. So, so that, yeah, there's that nice coll- connection to the Marx Brothers. Of course, the Marx Brothers, you know, are kind of like ground zero for Woody's love of comedy. Um, but those films were kind of laden with some fairly laborious <laughs> musical numbers. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially when they get yeah. to what, well, mostly when they get to MGM and uh, Irving Thalberg decided that they needed a little heart. I guess, you know, it's comedy, but it needs some heart. So that means these interminable duets and sort of operatic kind of numbers or whatever. But, um, I I guess it's night at the opera. You gotta have some opera at some point. (laughs) Um, yeah, but, but, but this, uh, I just love the the selection of songs is, is so charming. Like all these, these, you know, twenties and thirties novelty tunes. Cause of course, I guess, you know, he does uh, is noted for his use of music throughout his films and tends to default to kind of a, not Dixieland, but kind of like a, you know, an early dance band, foxtrotty kind of jazz music, Sidney Bechet and, and, you know, Louis Armstrong sure. and, and that kind of hot jazz, uh, before the big band swing era takes over. And, uh, you know, it's nice that the film doesn't lean too heavy on that particular, uh, genre and goes more for the, these kind of charming movie tunes, show tunes, and, and old novelty tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd like to see him use those a little more often than, than this, sort of the standard repertoire of classic jazz that he tends to lean on. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Uh, and I think that he, well, he, Sweet and Low Down was about a musician. I had a lot of that, that great, uh, 
great kind of jazz in it. Um, yeah, well, that's obviously, and that was actually, that's on my list. Uh, spoiler alert, it's my number one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, that, that of course is a nod to sort of Django Reinhardt-esque yes. music, even though the, the character's really not necessarily like Django Reinhardt. But, but um, you know, the, the, I, it's interesting to go back and listen and go through those movies. And, and I think he kind of, in recent years, he kind of leans on the kind of music that he likes as kind of a almost like a comfort uh, blanket or something like that, mm. but but uh, you know when you think of how he uses uh, Rhapsody in Blue at the start of Manhattan and it's absolutely perfect, and I, I don't know that his use of music is that perfect. It's just kind of familiar, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it's still, become one of his signatures. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a signature thing, and it works, and it sets the tone. You know, black and black and white uh, cr title credits and 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 a clarinet, yeah, <laughs> and, and you're off. Um, but you know. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see him use music like he did at the start of Manhattan in that kind of grand and glorious way. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I will say before we finish off uh, with Everyone Says I Love You is I wanted to mention a line from that too. I've never been kissed by a sociopath before, <laughs> which comes from uh, Drew Barrymore uh, on the, the balcony with Tim Roth, who was making the moves on her. <laughs> well, you mentioned Woody in the 90s with Everyone Says I Love You, and... Uh, he uh, he actually started that decade or ended the 80s, depending on how you want to look at it, um, with a, a pretty remarkable film that uh, seemed to be kind of, I don't know if dismissed is the right word, but it, it wasn't really greeted with uh, thunderous uh, uh, ovations uh, when it came out and, um, and isn't one that people generally think of when they think of Woody Allen movies, and that's Alice from uh, 1990. Uh, I, probably because it came out right after Crimes and Misdemeanors kind of hit it out of the park, you know, as, as one of his uh, best films in quite a few years. Um, you know, certainly uh, his, it's, it's thought of as his best film since Hannah and Her Sisters, which came out three or four years before that. Um, Alice is more of a fable. Uh, it, it, it's, it's got some of that wistful fantasy element that we see in some of his later films. In, in fact, maybe it's sort of the, well, I guess uh, the, the Purple Rose of Cairo is kind of the first kind of magic realism kind of thing where the characters actually march down off the movie screen. Um, so Alice is kind of in that vein. Um, and we again, we see that in, uh, in um, Midnight in Paris, where uh, Mia Farrow plays a kind of a, a distressed, put upon, uh, a very rich uh, New York City uh, housewife with a course of glorious apartment that nobody could afford. Uh, and uh, her husband's a, a busy lawyer who's also a bit of a philanderer, uh, played by William Hurt, play, playing a complete, uh, who also like kind of denigrates her with uh, kind of uh, passive aggressiveness. And he's this real, real jerk <laughs> throughout the film. And uh, William Hurt is really good at that. Um, it's funny that he, yeah. does that he does that so well. And uh, so she's trying to find a way out of this rut that she's in of the, you know, just, you know, being the wife of a successful lawyer, corporate lawyer, she wants to, to make her own mark. She tries to take a stab at creative writing and some other things, you know, and of course her husband just puts her down and says, what do you want to go do that for? And, you know, and, uh, but she's not getting a lot of support from the outside world. And, uh, somebody suggests, uh, and she's feeling a little depressed and someone suggests she goes to, uh, a, a Chinese herbalist played by Key Luke, who, uh, and he's great in this as as the kind of the the wizened old man in Chinatown who's doling out herbs and and potions and things. Um, you know, some people might remember him as often playing the number one son in Charlie Chan movies. So you know, Key Luke is kind of a a legend in that regard, certainly for uh, Asian American actors. 
and he's very funny here and he he gives her potions which all have these crazy effects like a love potion uh it gives her a potion that makes her invisible um you know and she's she kind of learns to manipulate these situations to her advantage uh you know and kind of comes out of her shell as the as the film progresses um you know there, you get to see alec baldwin as the ghost of a former lover the, the man who was going to be the lover of her life before he died in a car crash and he's very funny and in, in kind of a couple of brief scenes uh playing this ghost um and mia farrow is quite wonderful throughout the film as this, this woman who's trying to you know reestablish her own identity and uh does it with the help of a few magic tricks. And I, I really like that fantasy element. I, I mean, the title, it's kind of a nod to Alice in Wonderland, I think, but it's, it's not quite so literally a, a version of that. Although, you know, maybe, you know, maybe key Luke is kind of the caterpillar, you know, blowing smoke rings around her head because <laughs> his, his doctor's office also does double as a nopium den from time to time. But, uh, but it's, it's not quite a literal Alice in Wonderland. There, there's no white rabbit as such, but, uh, but it does imply that kind of fantasy and it's a really, really charming film and, and, uh, kind of a lovely romance and, you know, it does have a happy ending, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but, but it's, uh, it's interesting to see her kind of blossom. She also kind of has a sort of affair with, uh, Joe Mantegna, um, you know, who kind of early in his film career and that, and he's very charming as this, this jazz musician that she kind of falls for and tries to have a relationship with. So th there's a lot, there's a lot to love about this film. And, uh, you know, I, I, I find that Mia sometimes gets the short shrift, uh, with some of the characters that he gave her in, in, you know, as the, it seemed like the match, their relationship as their relationship was falling apart, her characters became kind of bitter and shrill, but here she gets to play kind of a well-rounded and, and, uh, you know, uh, self-fulfilling woman. Yeah. Now this is one I haven't seen, so I'm glad to hear you liked it. And I certainly, any chance I get to see a Woody Allen movie that I haven't seen, I, I want to take it. Um, they're not always easy to find, I find. Like, I, I did some research preparing for this podcast, and uh, there were they, it was tough to track them down. Certainly, his more dramatic films, or I should say the films that are lesser known, aren't always easy to find. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open for Alice. Yeah, well, I have a copy you can borrow. But okay, it's, thank you. It's, it's, it's certainly not a film that people tend to return to over and over again. And, you know, like the serious films, I mean, I mean, most people know Interiors and maybe September, but then there's another woman um, with, I, th I think, Gina Rollins, maybe. Mm -hmm. And... and uh, that's, that's the one that people always seem to forget. Um, I didn't care for interiors. In fact, I don't think a lot of people did at the time. Um, back in 1978 was when he did that. I, I forgot that it was between Annie Hall and Manhattan. Right. And then, uh, interiors came in between and then that sparked, uh, the, his feelings and stardust memories. Uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's interesting to see an artist respond to his, uh, audience in such a, a direct and, um, uh, you know, almost kind of bitter way with that film. But, um, but, uh, yeah, Alice is one that just kind of slipped beneath the, beneath the waves. And then Shadows and Fog came out shortly after and was also not terribly well received, but it's a fun movie to watch as he tries to kind of approximate that early Fritz Lang, F.W. Murnau kind of feel as a bunch of people search for a murderer. It's, it's kind of an homage to the film M largely with uh, Peter Lorre, the, right. uh, the first, uh, Fritz Lang sound film. Uh, and, uh, I remember I got to interview Maury Chaikin, who's has a very small role in the okay, film yeah. and he had just filmed it. In fact, I don't even know if it was out yet at that time. I just, 
somehow I'd, I'd read, I asked what else he'd been in. Oh, I just did a thing with Woody Allen. That was like, that was the first time I ever talked to anyone who'd worked in a Woody Allen film. Mm. And, uh, he didn't have a lot to say. He's like, you know, he was on the set for like two days and then he's like, yeah, I didn't, you know, I just kind of did my lines. He didn't really say much. Right. Which is also <laughs> which is kind of typical how for what James for working. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't give his actors a lot of direction, uh, when he shoots and he's very fast when he's shooting because he's he's a he's a director who's concerned about budget and wants to keep making movies but uh his scripts are so sharp and he's i think he's very demanding that the actors say the lines that are written um it's not a it's, he isn't he isn't a filmmaker that that i think allows for a lot of improv in his films no but that, that was and that was kind of a period that after you know ending the 80s with a bang with crimes and misdemeanors um he kind of cruised for for a couple of films and they made a pretty remarkable film that uh, in retrospect has even more impact. Husbands and wives, yeah. a divorce uh, movie that um, with a, with a great. Uh, mostly, I just remember how great Judy Davis is. Yeah, she is amazing, film. amazing in the film. And uh, but it is boy, it's a hard watch. Like I, yeah. I remember the last time I saw it, I was like, I don't think I don't know if I'll ever want to see this again. It is very. I mean, it's it's a very dark comedy, uh, but uh, with an emphasis on the dark. Like I, I yeah, I don't know, I don't know that I'd go there again. Um, but speaking of Judy Davis, she is an actor who shows up on another film on my list of uh, five lesser known or lesser appreciated Woody Allen movies, and that's Deconstructing Harry. And uh, this, in, in some ways, it is like Stardust Memories in that it feels like a story that Woody came up with to sort of uh, deal with accusations from the public. And in this case, it is that his films are autobiographical. In the movie, he plays Harry Block, a writer who uses his life as inspiration for his stories. And as a result, the people he knows hates him for it. Uh, we see scenes play out from his his books, and then we see the actual people who inspired the stories. The main plot has him driving to a university that he was kicked out of to collect an honorary degree with a friend, played by Bob Balaban, a prostitute, played by Hazel Goodman, and his son, played by Eric Lloyd. Um, and this is another comedy, I think, that is just packed full of ideas. And I think... That might be what I like most about Woody Allen in a general way, is that his movies, he, sometimes they don't work, sometimes they feel a little out of touch, but there is always an idea or a gag that really sings. There's at least one or two that really works. Um, and uh, yeah, one of my favorite ideas from Deconstructing Harry is when a character played by Robin Williams is out of focus <laughs> and that he can't seem to figure out what the problem is. <laughs> and he is genuinely out of focus for the length of the time. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I would say that this is one of his coarser movies as well. I noticed that in the 1990s, his characters all of a sudden, sudden started to swear. And <laughs> uh, and everything felt a little more ragged. Like the production values tended to feel a little more like he was trying to shoot faster. Um, but uh, but I, it works when deconstructing Harry. And I, I like the idea that, that in real life uh, doesn't really work for Harry. It only works in art. And that's, that's a theme that he returns to Woody Allen returns to again and again, the fact that, that, that art is more, um, uh, forgiving than, than real life is. It's funny. I'm thinking of this film recently when, uh, I was listening to a podcast and somebody was trying to remember, like, you ever see that movie where Woody Allen goes to hell? <laughs> and it's like, there's no movie where Woody Allen, you know, they could not come up with it. And, uh -huh. and uh, you know, I was like, uh, you know, only it was a game show. And, yeah. uh, for 10 points and that's that's a sequence that i think uh most people remember this film for but yeah you're right he, he does play a very caustic um kind of variation on himself uh you know part of me wonders if if the character he plays here is even closer to maybe the real life woody allen than than we've seen previously even even in stardust memories or at least you know maybe a 
maybe that's closer to the version that he was then and this is closer to what he is now but but it, it you know it does have a a, a pretty salty take on relationships and, mm-hmm. and and the relationships between men and women and so on and and uh i i haven't seen it in quite a long time but but uh you know i do remember being sort of taken aback by it but mm-hmm. still enjoying it and um you know it, it's and it's it feels like kind of a flip of the film he did before everyone says i love you with mighty aphrodite yeah which um you know had a had a wonderful performance um by uh, Mira Servino, who we don't see enough of these days, and she's she's quite lovely in that film, and and uh, you know especially considering there's another you know film with a prostitute as a main character, but mm-hmm. you know a complete flip on that. Yeah, yeah, and I would say uh, um, if you want to get a sense of the kind of intensity or the the way the humor goes in this, I've got another line that I want to read, uh, and it is it is uh, I think it's Judy Davis talking to, to the character of Harry Block, and she says, "You have no values." Your whole life, it's nihilism, it's cynicism, it's sarcasm, and your orgasm. And Harry says, you know, in France, I could run on that slogan and win. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I briefly mentioned uh, Sweet and Lowdown, which is actually kind of at the top of my list, but uh, I'll just dive into that one right now and uh, seeing as we're getting a little short on time this week, but... uh, it's a lovely film. It's kind of like the flip side of that depression era that we see in in uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, which is kind of a hopeful um, look at at people kind of dealing with a tough time and the romance of the movies. Sweet and Lowdown on the other side is is also set in the same time period, but things are not as uh, you know rosy. Uh, it's it's actually kind of a grimmer look at the life of a musician named Emmett Ray in a in one of uh, Sean Penn's best performances are certainly one of my favorite Sean Penn performances um, as this kind of dissolute, drunken, uh, drug-addicted guitarist and uh, the relationship he strikes up with a, a, a mute woman played by uh, Samantha Morton, a British actress who, uh, you know, it was we get to see, uh, many of us saw for the first time in this film. And uh, they have a wonderful relationship. Uh, you know, Woody gets to um, put in a lot of his thoughts about music in a way that some of his films don't do, uh, you know, he, he really uh, gets to the heart of why people love this uh, this this great music from days gone by. It's there's a, a lot of time spent uh, paying homage to uh, the great Django Reinhardt, um, a guitarist who is much better known and loved than uh, Sean Penn's Emmett Ray, and uh, you know it's 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 funny, but it's 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 bittersweet, and I, I find it had a really good balance uh, in terms of the tone of it. Um, compared to uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, which is a great film. But uh, part of me, I think, even likes this uh, film a little bit more. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I find that Purple Rose of Cairo is is certainly about his passion for, uh, the, you know, the silver age of, of Hollywood. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's Woody on, on, on whimsy, uh, which is, is a great kind of Woody Allen movie, but it isn't what I'm always in the mood for, where I feel like uh, Sweet and Low Down has, is, is genuinely a little more melancholy. It's, it's funny because, because uh, Sean Penn's character, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's not really very likable. He doesn't treat the Samantha Morton, Morton character very no. well, uh, but they have this, this connection that neither of them can deny. Uh, and, and then we get to basically laugh at, at this lead character's obsession. But uh, in the end, he, it's without spoiling it, it is quite of a sad, a sad ending. And, and uh, you know, you, you, um, 
you walk away from it uh, feeling, I think you walk away feeling more than, than maybe some of his other films. Now, you've got one more film on your list, I believe. I do, yes, and I'm just going to touch on it quickly. Uh, Match Point from 2005, ah. which is uh, is the, the Woody Allen movie I would recommend for people who don't like Woody Allen, because I think in some ways it's the most unlike his established style with the most success. Uh, Match Point is his Hitchcock film. It's set in London. It's about a character named Chris Whitten, who's very well cast, Jonathan Rees Myers, who I've always thought of as a bit of a snake. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he plays plays a retired, sort of a tennis pro, a retired uh, professional tennis player who works at a, a high-end London tennis club. And he's a social climber. And when he gets he meets a guy named Tom, played by Matthew Good, at the club. He catches the eye of Tom's sister, Chloe, played by Emily Mortimer. Now, Tom is engaged to an American named Nola Rice, played by Scarlett Johansson. But Chris and Nola have chemistry, which really complicates matters as uh, Chris and Chloe are, are engaged to be married and then get married. But, but uh, are sorry. Uh, yeah, Chris and Chloe. So Chris, uh, so Chris, Chris is it's twisted, is, folks. It's, it's twisted. twisted. <laughs> so so Chris is uh, is a guy who has appetites and and he's kind of in conflict between this need to to better his life and and uh, he likes this family and it brings out the better side of him. But at the same time, he can't help but pursue his brother in law's girlfriend. Uh, and this is a white knuckler of a film. It builds suspense right f- right to the final moments. And uh, it feels very different to most Woody's. Of course, he went to London to make it, which that in itself at the time was quite a novelty. He made a number of films in Europe after having made New York his base for a while. And so that that changed the the feeling of his of some of his later work by virtue of, of the locations. But, um, you know, I think the thing about this film is... Um, uh, he's not in it. He's directing it, but he doesn't star in it. And his characters, they're really not likable. I mean, his lead character, he's, he's really, it's, it's touch and go whether or not you have any sympathy for him at all. But because the suspense is built so well, you can't help but get drawn into it. Mm. And in that way, yeah, I, I compare it very favorably to Hitchcock. Yeah, it, it, it works very well. It has that kind of strangers on a train feel about it a little bit, but it's, uh, it, it moves very quickly. Uh, and, uh, and and I like the the fact that it's in a fresh setting for uh, for Alan, which is is a big boost. I, I felt that occasionally his lack of direction of actors um, does let down Scarlett Johansson in a few scenes. There's a mm-hmm. couple of things where I don't know if it's her line deliveries or what are a little bit tone deaf, or there's there's, there's something a bit off about them. Um, I mean, she's fine in other parts of the film, but uh, there's a few moments where you know that she probably could have used a little more help with their yeah, scenes yeah, and from, from a that. director and uh you know and, and normally you know he, he just casts really well and uh and that sort of gets over that kind of hurdle but i think in this case uh it's it's not that it's an early film for her but i think i think um you know she, maybe a few more takes would have, would have helped well she she joins him again she becomes one of his regular uh casts in uh, scoop and then in vicky christina barcelona yeah. which he, she's amazing in. Yes. so so yeah she does she does very well with woody uh but you have one more on your list what's and, what's and that? I've, I've got one more it's uh it's radio days it's it's a very charming kind of anthology movie of sorts it's it's a collection of vignettes from the 1930s the film itself was made in 1987 and uh, half the film concerns a family living out in rockaway in uh, in brooklyn and their relationship with the stars of and the shows on the radio um 
Seth Green, who you might remember from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, amongst other things, plays a kind of ersatz young version of Woody. Uh, and he loves this show called The Masked Avenger, which is kind of loosely based on The Shadow. Um, but, uh, you know, I like this film a lot. It's, it's almost like what Dark Cafe Society is kind of trying to do, only way more successful because it's, 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 uh, it really invests the characters in this film with a real kind of a glow. You really get to know the family and the family dynamic. And you also get some some fun bits with the radio stars, including Mia Farrow as a sort of bleached blonde with a real um, real Betty Boop kind of kind of uh, Brooklyn voice, and uh, and then later in the film, uh, Diane Keaton just appears out of nowhere to sing a couple of numbers uh, at this uh, nightclub that everyone frequents, and it, it's it's a really charming film. It it's uh, it's got this amazing. 30s production design it kind of in a sense it reminds me of a christmas story in that regard that it really does feel like the period everything feels worn and lived in and uh it gives them a chance to do a lot of just straight out jokes just jokes and gags in the context of this look at uh, radio and this uh kind of slightly wacky family living in rockaway Well, that wraps up our look at the films of Woody Allen, a long career, almost 50 movies, and probably more to come in the next few years if he keeps going at his current rate. Um, But hopefully you go back and fill in a few cracks in the collection and and look at some titles that you may have passed by, either in a video store, whatever one of those is left, (laughs) maybe not, but or at the library or where have you, and uh, find some extra laughs that you didn't know existed. Now, if you want to reach out to us, we are on Facebook and on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears. We are also available by email, lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I am on Twitter at Karsten Knox at C-A-R-S-T-E-N-K-N-O-X. And don't forget, if you enjoyed the show or any of our previous shows that you can find on iTunes or Stitcher or any of your favorite podcast sites, you can uh, leave us a few coins over at Patreon if you so desire. Thanks for listening to Lends Me Your Ears. And thanks to CKDU and Village Sound for their facilities. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox, all music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.